Well, do you remember 23 or 24 years ago, the O.J. Simpson trial? Remember this? He was arrested and uh, put on trial for the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and a man named Ron Goldman. Remember that? Uh, I think all of America <clears throat> watched the very famous white Bronco chase through the streets of LA. Remember this? And how crazy it all got. And we watched with rapt attention as the trial kind of unfolded and it just seemed to get crazier and crazier. And it just seemed like all of the attention uh, and all of the evidence was pointing toward his guilt. Remember this? And when the verdict finally came back and it was announced that the jury found him not guilty, I think America was in shock. America was so surprised. And eventually when the television cameras got around to the jurors who brought forth this, this not guilty verdict, they, said, they all said, it was the glove. Remember this? It was the glove. The glove didn't fit. It was the glove. And, and, and then they used this legal term and they said it, it posed a reasonable doubt. It went beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you remember this? You see, prosecuting attorneys are asked to prove their cases beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard phraseology in our judicial system that judges uh, remind the participants that in the case, the prosecuting attorney must prevent, uh, pre present sufficient evidence to convict uh, a person beyond a reasonable doubt, but not a shadow of a doubt, right? It is a reasonable doubt, and there's a difference, right? Because some doubt is reasonable. To expect any prosecuting attorney to present enough evidence to convince all of the jurors beyond a shadow of a doubt is deemed in our judicial system to be unreasonable and an unrealistic unreal expectation. So, in fact, in every dimension of life, you and I negotiate through this thing called reasonable doubt. We really do. We've learned to live with a certain measure of doubt in all areas of our life. For example, if you book a, plight, a flight and you get on a plane to go to LA, uh, there is no guarantee that your plane, once it leaves Metro, will land safely in LA. You like to think it would. And, and there seems to be enough evidence that moves us beyond a reasonable doubt, right? There's enough evidence there that says, I'm going to buy this ticket anyways. But there is no guarantee that it will land, right? Uh, I have been at the altar with many, many young men, grooms, who are waiting to meet their bride at the end of that aisle, and many of these guys have really sweaty palms. And you know why, right? It is because they are thinking, whoa, are, am I sure about this? I mean, is this really the one? Out of all of the women on planet Earth, is this the one that's perfect? Is this the one that's for me? Is this the one that is meant to be for me, right? And, and I'm going to say, listen, probably, probably, but you couldn't prove it, right? There's a reasonable doubt there. Like your job, right? You go to work tomorrow uh, or Monday, you think that your job's gonna be there, but it's possible that through layoffs or something crazy, you could just lose your job on Monday. You, you go showing up thinking you got work, or maybe you go out, out to lunch. There is no guarantee that your lunch won't have bacterial poison and kill you, right? But there's... But, but there's enough evidence out there that brings you beyond that reasonable doubt, am I right? That, that says it's probably going to be okay. So all of us are forced to live with this measure of uncertainty. Uh, we, we've grown accustomed to kind of weighing the evidence, navigating the evidence, and considering the data, and making our decisions based on this idea of high probability. In all of life, that's how we work, except for maybe in the fields of math and logic. It's pretty much on the basis of probability. We don't live in the realm of beyond a shadow of a doubt. We live in the realm of beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I bring all of this up 
because of the current series we're in. It's called I Don't Believe. And we have been tackling some very difficult issues. Uh, we have been talking about can we reasonably believe that God even exists at all? And you remember, we got around this idea that, that our, our belief patterns, whether we're an atheist or a Christian, a theist or an agnostic or anywhere in between, uh, it takes us somewhere. It leads us somewhere. And if you decide to go down the route that you don't believe in God, it's going to lead you somewhere. And you just have to weigh that evidence and decide if that's where you want to be led in life. Last week, we got around this idea that a whole bunch of people seem to be kind of walking away from, from God, or at least the God of their childhood or, the, or, or organized religion. And, and, and what happened, we talked about this, is that so many of us had this picture of this worldview of God when we were little. But the problem is we grew up, but our version of God did not grow up. And our thinking about God did not grow up with, with us. And so, friends, if you missed that, I hope that you will go back and that you will catch up on this, because I think this is some really, really important stuff. But up to this point in our little series here, I haven't attempted to convince you to believe anything. I don't know if you realize that. But I haven't gone to this point of saying, hey, listen, here's why you should believe. Well, today, um, this is risky. And this is a little bit scary for me to do. But I'm going to attempt to give you some thoughts that I hope will move you forward, that will help you take another step toward belief. Maybe even for some in this room, I hope it will push you beyond a reasonable Doubt. Now, I don't pretend to convince, be able to say much to convince any of you of anything, but my hope is, is that you will listen with an open heart, that you will listen being willing to hear, and that you won't just sit back and go, oh, I don't like that word, I don't like that sentence, I don't want you to micromanage every single sentence because you'll miss what I'm trying to paint for you. Have an open heart. Listen, and then follow where the evidence leads. That's all I'm asking, right? So we have to admit that much of society is pushing away from God. Would you agree? Much of society is just pushing away from it. I remember seeing this major motion picture that came out a while back. Uh, to me, it was incredibly creative, um, but it was an all-out challenge to belief in God, and many people simply missed it. They just thought it was a cool little movie, but it was a challenge uh, an all-out challenge uh, about belief in God. Uh, Jim Carrey played one of his more serious roles in a 1998 film called The Truman Show. It was a fascinating film which Carrey plays Truman Burbank. Now pause for a second. Remember this. True man. Not just Truman. True man. You're going to see, see this develop throughout this film, right? Uh, he was a young man who was adopted as a newborn by the Omnicam Corporation. Omnicam created this movie set the size of a city and placed Truman in shortly after his birth. And all of his life, he believes that his, his existence in safe haven, pause for a second, is that reminisce of heaven? Safe haven, right? And, and he thinks all of his life that he's in this idyllic place, that it's a perfect little place to live. Um, but in reality, we're, we're going to learn that it was just a tightly controlled, manufactured environment. It simply wasn't real. His parents, his friends, and even his wife were all actors, every single one of them. There were over 5,000 cameras uh, in the set. And unknown to Truman, they are televising almost every single step of his life. He does not realize it, but he's like a caged animal. 
for the benefits of this reality TV show, for profits of this corporation. And, and it's the longest and strongest, most popular reality show ever, according to the movie. And it would be, right? If, if we had a person living a fake life and they didn't even realize it, I think almost every single person would tune into that, right? Well, the show's director is Christoph. Christoph. Notice the name Christ in there, right? Very purposeful, uh, which is a godlike character, and he's controlling everything in Truman's world. Truman's reality has been manipulated by Kristoff, and Truman believes that he's a happy man, that everything's perfect in his little world, the temperature's perfect, the roads are perfect, everything's perfect. And that's because it's all fake. Every bit of it's climate controlled and temperature controlled, and everything is controlled. It's a false reality, yet it's the only reality that Truman has ever known. But after 30 years of living in this idyllic, fake sort of a world uh, in Sea Haven, Truman uh, slowly begins to realize that, that he's got questions about his existence, that, that he begins to realize that some of the answers that he's been given along the way just don't add up. They don't make sense. And so he starts questioning everything about his little world in which he lives. Um, pause for a second. You starting to see any similarities, what's going on with culture and our relationship to God? You seeing this at all? Um, it's in, in, in the movie, you, as you, it progresses, uh, we learn that there's a valiant attempt to escape this world. He kind of confronts his deepest fears and he sails across this fake sea that he is, is surrounding his little town. And, and eventually he emerges out into the, what they call the, quote, real world. And when he steps out into the real world, everything changes for him. The, the movie tries to make a point, if you can travel through it, that even though Truman was happy before he found reality, he was still a very tragic figure because his life was manipulated, because it was controlled by this Kristoff character. The, 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 the point of the film is that though he lived in this idyllic world and had all of his needs met, he was still a broken human being because he lived in a fake world. And it wasn't until he was able to find freedom from Christoph, and it wasn't until he found freedom from this, from this manufactured world that he lived in uh, did he ever really become an authentic person. So you see what the movie was teaching? Did you see? Uh, organized religion has been used... Um, the, has used the idea of God and Christ to control people, to regulate under the understanding of reality for a whole bunch of people. They, they've even used it for profit, for personal gain. But uh, authentic individuals, listen, authentic individuals will break out of that world as safe and as comfortable as it is in order to experience real life true life, right? It takes courage to break out of a make-believe world where God seems to be the director, where, where God seems to be making all of it work for you. But authentic and courageous people, we learn in this movie, they break free from that kind of thinking into the real world. And the show's writers were actually tapping into an old philosophy that really emerged uh, in the mid-1800s. It was a philosophy um, that has been represented in pop culture terms. In the 19th century, philosophers um, who, who gained the most notoriety uh, around this idea that God is simply manufactured was, was a guy named David Hume and Sigmund Freud. And, and these guys said that, that, that God, the idea of God, was created by man because man needed a God, because man felt helpless, man felt out of control, man needed security, man needed some sort of God figure to feel like we could rely on. But there was no God, they would say. 
There, it's this man-made effort to somehow find security. It feels good to have this benevolent creature above the world, right? And so here's how Sigmund Freud said it. He says, he says that man was not created in the image of God, but God created, but, but man created God in his image. That man was not created in the image of God, but that God was created in the image of man. And so the challenge for Christians and, and people like me who believe in this existence of God, the, the challenge is, is how do we answer this kind of thinking of an unbelieving world, a skeptical world, and, and, and how do we help people, and guys like me who do this, you know, stand in front of people like you, how, how do we help people to break through some of that skepticism about God? How do we get folks to maybe take steps toward faith? toward believing that God is not just this manufactured thing, but that God is real and wants a personal relationship with you. And so over the next few minutes, I hope to, to give you some thoughts that might take you in that direction a little bit. I'm just being honest with you. I hope to give you some things to think about that might break through some of your skepticism. And, and here's a thought about this. Um, I hope to do this in the next 20 or 30 minutes, right? Uh, but I want you to realize something. This is no small task because there are entire libraries filled with books about this very issue. People have spent their entire lifetime thinking about this and, and kind of playing with these ideas in their mind. And so um, I'm gonna try to do this in the next few minutes. I'm just asking that you have an open heart because friends, listen to me. This is a really, really big deal. I mean, this is a big, big deal. Um, I want you to think about how big this is. I want you to think whether consciously or unconsciously, what we believe about God determines just about every important thing in our life. Belief in God shapes the way that you view life, the way that you view death, the way that you view what is right and wrong, ultimately suffering and pain and meaning and purpose of everything. If there is no God, Ultimately, life has no purpose. If you're just biology, if you're just chemistry, um, there is no life after death. There is no grand meaning of it all. If there is no God, then there is no ultimate, ultimate right or wrong. Everything becomes relative. If there is no God, all suffering is just meaningless. It's just pain to be endured. It doesn't carry any eternal weight to it at all. If there is no God, everything exists as just a cosmic accident with no eternal meaning. But if, let me tell you something, friends, but if there is a God, all of that changes. It changes our purpose. It changes our meaning. It changes our existence. It changes the pain and the suffering that we go through. It changes what will happen to us after we die. It changes the goals, the moral directions of our life. It changes everything. Couldn't we at least say that we would all agree that if God is real, it is a big deal, right? Could we at least agree with that? And so I just think, I just think that it's important, no matter what you believe coming into this place, that we spend some time searching and thinking about deep and important things in life. So let's do this together. So I'm gonna throw a couple of ideas at you. And uh, I'm gonna begin with this one. It's the first one I'm gonna call it for this idea of why I believe in God. And the first one is this thing called evidence from creation. At least that's what I'm calling it. Uh, look around for a second. Unless you're just really out there, on your way in, you can conclude concretely that certain things exist, right? You, you saw trees and grass and uh, maybe some clouds or, or, or the sun or, or you saw a building. Things exist, right? And, and so I want you to think about this for a moment. The moment something exists, you, you begin to ask questions, 
right? It's reasonable to ask questions. You ask, why do these things exist? Uh, how do all these things exist? What was the cause of all these things? So philosophers call this the principle of sufficient reason. In other words, we don't want to just randomly believe in something or follow something or think something. We want to know why. We want to know the cause of it. We want a sufficient reason to believe in what we believe. And so scientists get around, or philosophers get around this idea of what is the sufficient reason to believe anything exists. So now just suppose, go with me for a second. Now just suppose uh, for a moment that nothing existed. Would nothingness require any explanation at all? Now some of you think it's already getting weird, okay? Just track with me for a second. Would nothingness require an explanation? No. No, it would not, right? But the split second something comes into existence, what happens in our mind? We start questioning, we start asking, we go, why does this exist? How did this get here? So for example, let's say you're taking a, a road trip, uh, let's say through South Dakota, God forbid, and uh, you're, you're driving through South Dakota and it's a long road trip and you're through the Badlands, right? And they call it the Badlands for a reason because there is nothing there. It is, it is scrub land, right? And you're driving through the Badlands and you're thinking about nothing because there's nothing to think about, right? It is just like, road and you're there and you're not thinking about anything. But then all of a sudden, as you're driving along, you literally run into Mount Rushmore. Like boom. And you see those four presidents carved on the side of the mountain. And, and, and what do you think automatically? Do you go, oh, wow, neat. Look at nature's work. No. Immediately you go, whoa, who did that? That's amazing. How did that, how did they, how did they do that, right? You, you immediately begin to think because once something comes into existence, it is reasonable for reasonable people to ask, how did that happen? What is the reason? What is the cause for something to exist? Are you following me so far? Well, that leads to another question or another thought from this idea of creation. When we carefully observe all of this stuff that exists, we can conclude that everything, now think about this, we can conclude from what we've learned about life that everything is contingent. Now philosophers call this the principle of contingency, that everything is contingent on something else. Everything is interconnected to something. Listen, nothing exists on its own. Everything needs something else. There's a cause and effect relationship to everything in our world. We learned this in school, remember this? Everything is interconnected. And, and so the trees need air, uh, the grass needs water, they both need the sun to, to exist. Um, nothing we observe, at least as far as my thinking, uh, that I can think of, uh, nothing we observe around us seems to be utterly independent, self-caused, or self-reliant. Am I right? Nothing stands utterly alone in our world. Nothing. All of it has some sort of cause and effect relationship. In fact, science tells us this, that nothing that exists now will last forever. Everything breaks down. Everything, if left to itself, needs maintenance. Everything needs propped up because everything rusts. Everything withers. Everything fades away. This is called the, law of, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, right? That it's called the law of entropy, that everything is in decline. Everything, all of nature, all that we build, our automobiles, our houses, everything is in decline, including you. And you don't believe that, do you? You're in decline. Just go back to your high school yearbook and look at your graduating picture and then compare it to you now. You are in decline, okay? I am in decline. That's just the way. Some people get better with age. Very few of us, right? Uh, it's just the law of science that everything that exists eventually declines. And so, if this law of contingency, that everything that we see is interconnected and relying on something else and nothing is independent, self-caused or self-reliant, this leads to another question. 
If all that exists is fragile, contingent, and fading away, how is it all held together? Because science tells us that everything is spinning out of control, that there's this big black hole that's eventually gonna suck us all in, right? And so the question is, is how is it held together? If science can be believed and if science, uh, and if science says that everything is fading, everything is falling apart, we will come to an end. And so the question is, is who is keeping that end from coming? Who is holding this all together? So let me help you to understand uh, what I'm driving at here. So uh, let's pretend for a moment that we're gonna pull ourselves out of our little universe, okay? Now some of y'all think that you're the center of the universe, that's a whole nother message coming at a different time, we'll talk about that. Uh, but let's just pretend for a second that we're pulled back and we're looking at the universe. And so this little uh, picture with my mad uh, drawing skills is gonna represent the entire world, everything that we know. And so there's, there's you in this world, and there's baby you, and you know. And uh, there, there's the stars and the sun and the moon and, and the, the, the whole universe is here, right? That, let's just pretend for a second that the entire universe is here. And so let's just kind of draw a circle around everything that is known to exist. Everything that is known to exist is now represented inside this, this circle. So here's my question. If we know that everything inside of this circle had a beginning, if we know that everything inside of this little circle had a cause for its beginning, if we know that everything inside of this circle is contingent on something else for its survival that needs to be propped up, if everything in this circle is fading away, here's my question. Would it be more reasonable? What would be the reasonable conclusion of evidence? Where would it lead you? Would we think that the cause of everything inside of this circle, would that cause lie in this circle or outside of this circle? Would it? Where would it lie? I would say it'd have to be outside of this circle because we already know that everything in this circle is fading away. Everything in this circle is going down. Everything in this circle had a beginning to it. Everything had a cause, right? And so friends, the Bible says it like this. And I know when you're talking about how do you believe God, you don't really want to use the Bible but the Bible makes a very uh, interesting claim. The very first four words of the entire scripture begin like this. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It begins to paint this picture that before it all began, there was something. God. God was there. And really, that's for you to believe. That's for you to come to terms with, whether you believe that or not. But that's the, what the scripture teaches us is that it takes something. I think the world teaches us that it takes something for all of that to exist. And the question for us, it, it's how, right? And so I'm gonna give a little stab at my philosophy and logic. I'm pretty simple, uh, but this is how I, I see the progression of, of my thoughts here. And I just want you to hear this, right? Um, I think one of the most obvious things is, is that everything which with a beginning has a cause. We can conclude that everything that has a beginning has a cause, right? And, and so there would be some steps under my thinking here, right? The first one is this. If the universe exists, matter, time, space, all that kind of stuff, energy, if the universe exists, the universe had to have a beginning. Everything with a beginning has a cause. Therefore, the universe itself has a cause, and the cause for that universe must be outside of this universe. Does that make sense? And here's why. Here's why. 
In order for anything to exist, something must have already existed. Something must be eternal. Okay, and here, here's, philosophy has this little um, thing called the philosophy of nothing. Okay? Um, and, and so let me just take you over to our little glass jar. Just, just assume for a second that this uh, glass jar was sanitary and there's no weird biological things going on in there. It's just a glass jar, perfectly uh, sanitary. Nothing exists in here. Let me ask a very simple question. Question, how could this jar, even given billions of years, could it produce a baby in here? Come on, it's not a trick question. Could it? No, why? Because y'all do know how babies are produced, right? Right? It takes something, a little something, something, if you know what I mean, right? To produce something, right? And so the question is, is, is how long would it take for this jar, assuming it's perfectly sterile, to produce anything? My answer would be never. And there's a reason for this. It's the philosophy of nothingness. Nothing plus nothing equals nothing. It will always be that way. It's always been that way. And we learned that in our science class years and years and years ago, that all matter comes from something, all of it. All of it. And so this is just kind of the starting point to think about this idea that from creation, uh, we, 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 we start to see something here. And doesn't a rational, reasonable thinking person have to conclude that the cause of everything in the circle must lie outside of the circle? And by definition, whatever lies outside of that circle must be absolutely independent, self-caused, and self-reliant. Which, which, which would make that an eternal, unlimited, and all-powerful. And my friends... That sounds dangerously close to a definition for God. Y'all with me? So this is interesting. Um, the scripture talks about this circle relationship. It really does. In, in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, here, here, here's how it reads. It says, all things were created by him and for him. So it says that, the, that all this stuff in the circle that we know exists, it was all created. This is the worldview that the scripture takes, right? It, it says that all of it was created. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. All that is contingent. Why isn't it falling apart? Why does it not just crumble into oblivion? Why don't we just blow up and get sucked into the black hole or to the sun and all these things that, that we're told to fear? The scripture says it's because God holds it together. That there is a God who is outside of that circle. And, and you have to decide what's more reasonable to believe. Something from nothing or a God who's outside of that circle. It's up to you, really. Um, and here, here's the next thought. It's called, uh, it's evidence from design. So when you think about how crazy the world is and how complex the world is, when you hold the baby, um, look at how complex everything is. And that complexity leads us to think about certain realities, right? That anything that is complex has a designer. Matter of fact, philosopher William Paley uh, simply wrote these words. There cannot be design without a designer, right? There's an engineer behind everything that, it, virtually everything that exists. Somebody did some work to think about it, right? Um, in his book about Albert Einstein, uh, called Einstein, His Life and the Universe, Walter Isaacson uh, tells of a dinner party that he attended with Einstein in Berlin, and they were talking about spiritual things when Einstein walked in, and the room assumed that Einstein was an atheist, and so they asked him about it, and here is Isaacson's reflections on what Einstein said when he walked into this dinner party. He says, no, 
Einstein speaking, no, I have a deep uh, feeling of faith, a deep religiosity that comes from my appreciation of the way the Lord made the universe. And everybody was stunned because they just assumed that Einstein would be this atheist. But Einstein went on to tell a little story according to Isaacson in this little dinner party. Einstein said something like this. He says, "Um, the reason I'm not an atheist is because... um, I am like a child walking into a library. And when you see all the books, you know somebody must have written them. And when you see them ordered on the shelves, you must think that somebody ordered them. And when you look at all of that, you must stand in awe and wonder. And Isaacson concludes this little thought about Einstein like this. He says, in some ways, Einstein's belief in God, that God had created an orderly universe, informed his science. He believed that the underlying uh, underlying everything, there are laws. There are laws. See, Einstein uh, was not a Christian that we know of. He never came into this personal relationship uh, that we know of, but he could not deny the obvious because of the complexity of design. He realized there had to be something bigger something outside of that design to design it, that it wasn't just this happenstance of random selective process. The design argument simply states the familiar theory that says everything that we see came, could not have come into existence by sheer chance. Now, most, uh, most people, scientists today, believe in this thing called the Big Bang Theory. And the way I understand it is this, is that there are these uh, cosmic gases that were floating in the universe somehow in some way, uh, pre-existent to the universe, um, and that they ran into each other and through some sort of pressure, through some sort of cosmic clash, that they had this explosion and it resulted in what they call space dust. And those space dust over enough time gathered themselves together and became more complicated space dust, which eventually became you and the earth and everything that we we see. This is called the Big Bang Theory, right? The problem is this. The design argument says, ultimately, that there's a question that remains. No scientist can explain, even if all that is true, no scientist can explain where did the gas come from in the first place and what was making it float and why was it floating and where did it come from and who put it together and who made pressure and who made explosive forces. And friends, I would think that these are legit questions, right? Um, Scientists have, I think honest scientists, and we're going to talk about this later in the series, uh, a lot of honest scientists blush at the complicated math formula of random chance that could possibly produce all of this, let alone that could produce a baby or a bird in flight. It's far, far, far complicated, far too complicated to be without a designer. And and so I I don't know if you've thought about the the complexity of the design of the earth. Uh, We're told that the earth has like 60 things that must be contingent, that must be perfectly in alignment, that must be consistent for all of us to survive. And if these things aren't right, we're all going to die, right? And here's just a couple of them. Life could not exist if any one of the following were were true. If the earth was slower or faster in its rotation, if the earth was just 2 to 5% closer or further from the sun, if there was a 1% change in the amount of sunlight that hits the earth, we would all die. If, If 
if anything changed at all, we would just die, right? Uh, Earth was smaller or larger. Moon was smaller or larger. If there was more than one moon, uh, this will blow your mind. Scientists tell us that because of gravitational forces and because of heat and all this crazy stuff, that if the Earth's crust was any thicker or thinner, we would just all die. We would just all die. And so there has to be this perfect alignment of consistency of all of these things, oxygen versus nitrogen ratio in the earth, right? All of these things have to be absolutely perfect all of the time. And I would just humbly submit to you that takes an awful, awful big random chance for all that to come together. I just want you to think about where does the logical, reasonable evidence lead you? Here's another thought for you. Um, some a reason, one of the reasons I believe in God is it's called the evidence from the human experience. And it goes something like this. Uh, some people call this the moral argument, but very simply put, the moral argument is this, is how is it that human beings everywhere worldwide recognize uh, a moral code, a, a, a common moral co code? How is it that human beings ha have this sense of moral oughtness about them? Think about this. There is a common thread that weaves its way through the human experience. If human beings are simply evolved from you know, chemical processes, how is it that we we mainly value the same things. Not that we all practice these values perfectly, not at all, but we value certain things, right? Uh, it's hard to think that evolution would explain this because, listen, uh, why is it that we know certain things are good and certain things are bad? Why do we value certain things over other things? For example, at every point in human history, from every race, every culture, every language, every economic group, every education group, people value truth-telling over deceitfulness, kindness over violence, loyalty over backstabbing, hope over despair, peace over war, forgiveness over revenge. How do you explain that if we're just from biology, if we're just chemistry? Um, why is it that the world over, people rise up against tyrants? Why is it that we come to the aid of victims? Why is it that our heart is stirred deeply when we see people hurting and humanity comes to the rescue of orphans and homeless and the poor and the crippled among us? If we do not have a moral code imprinted on our heart by a supreme moral being, how do you explain this? How do you explain this? Sometimes I hear atheists talk about these movements that we ought to support. And, and, and a lot of them are good, like, I don't know, recycling or save the planet and all this stuff, right? And, and I'm sure a lot of it's really good, but it always strikes me as irony. It always strikes me as, as, as odd that, that they appeal to some moral code that you ought to feel this. It's a matter of justice. I'm thinking, if I'm just biology, I don't have to feel anything you feel. If I'm just evolved, I don't have to care about what you care about. I, there is no issue besides me taking care of me, right, ultimately. And it's odd that they would appeal to this moral sense that we all have across the board. Friends, I would just humbly submit to you that this sense of justice that most of humanity feels at most of the time, it comes from a, from a supreme moral being. Here's how the scripture actually says it. It says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, God put a conscience inside of you. It's inside of me. And there's this moral oughtness that drives most of humanity, most of the time. It's the human experience. One more thought. And it's this, is the evidence from personal experience. Now, I admit that this is um, very subjective. I, I really do. 
Um, and I, I think it is fair that uh, you, you can say that, you know, hey, look, you can feel this about God, that you think you've had this God experience, but you can be delusional. You can be psychotic. You can be strange. I think that is true. I think that is true. But, but for millions and millions of people to feel that somehow they've connected with God, that somehow God has met them, it, it seems just a little bit dismissive to me, right? If you could point to, you know, two or three people who think they are, you know, God, like, you know, they think they've met with God, or if you could point to a few hundred or a few thousand, but really billions of people over thousands of years have felt that somehow they've connected to their creator, that somehow they have felt grace and forgiveness and hope in the middle of tragedy, comfort in the middle of incredible suffering. Friends, I, I just don't think that we should easily dismiss this because we're not talking about just, you know, psycho people, right? We're, we're talking about some people who are our best and our finest thinkers, well-adjusted non-marijuana smoking people all over the globe, right? Now, no offense to the marijuana smoking types in the room, uh, but, but across the board, we're talking some of the greats of this world, presidents and world leaders and judges and scientists, as well as honorable butchers and factory workers and homemakers and teachers, all have claimed to have this sense of developing this relationship with a personal God. And let me tell you something, all across this little church here, there are tons of people who, if they met you, they would tell you that their life was heading off the rails, that their life was out here somewhere, that they had this lostness about them. They had this wandering about them or they had this struggle or this addiction or this pain or this whatever it was, this, this loneliness or whatever it was. And they would tell you that God has literally transformed their minds, their hearts, their thinking, their very lives. And friends, I would just humbly submit to you this is my story. That God connected with me. And I know it's not proof for any of you, but I can tell you just what I know. That there was an ache in my soul that was deep, that was broken. And, and I felt what, what St. Augustine, the great philosopher, once wrote. He said, he put it this way, uh, the Lord, he has made you for himself and our hearts are restless until they find you, God. I lived that. My heart was restless until I found God. Blaise Pascal says it like this, the brilliant mathematician, one of the great scientists in human history. He says, um, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every single human heart. I experienced that. Or to borrow from the great, great Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart. My heart was hungry for the things of God. And I knew something was missing in my life all the things and all the success and all the stuff, all the materialism, friends, family, love. For me, it just couldn't fill the vacuum. It couldn't fill the void in my life. You see, there's this personal experience that so many of us have had. And I just don't think you should dismiss it altogether. Friends, I'd go so far as to say this. I think one of the reasons why so many people find atheism or agnosticism attractive. I, I think there's a reason why so many people have trouble with belief. And I don't think it's all intellectual. I really don't. 
I don't think it's all because, oh, I just need more evidence, more evidence, more evidence. You know what I think, friends? I think ultimately it's a matter of desire. It's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. Let me tell you, like, let me put it like this. God will never exist for you until you want him to. I think so many of us, even Richard Dawkins talks about, he has this construct that doesn't even allow the possibility of God. And some of us have built this construct in our own life that says we're not even gonna allow the possibility of God to break through because listen, friends, we want to be our own God. We wanna be in charge. We like the way our life is going. We like having no one to submit to. We like having no final authority other than ourselves. And frankly, if God is true at all, then there's probably some things in your life, in my life, that this God wouldn't appreciate too much. And we said at the beginning that if God is true, then it's a really big deal. And it changes everything. And frankly, some of us don't want to change. And I'm just saying, I don't think that is a very wise move. I think you have to be open. Ask the right questions. To learn, to grow, take your next steps toward him. And here's one of the things that I believe with all of my heart. Can't prove it to you, but I believe it with all of my heart. That if you move toward him, he will meet with you. You will find him because he's already searching for you. He just wants us to open our eyes a little, our hearts a little, our minds a little. And that's my hope, that you'll do just that, that you'll open your heart.